Well, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're talking about love is the most excellent way. And we're taking this chapter slowly because it's really uh, foundational to chapter 14. And so we're, we're taking our time. We're not trying to hurry. We've got um, time to get through it. But uh, we just want to make sure that we understand what Paul is saying here in this text because it's so crucial. And so I, I would ask, invite you to stand as I just read our text for this morning, uh, verses 8 to 10 out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul writes, Their love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Father, we ask you to bless your word to our hearts this morning. Give us insight and wisdom beyond our ability. I pray that I'd be able to communicate um, what we have this morning clearly and concisely and in a way that honors you. We ask you to speak to each heart. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the theme here in 1 Corinthians 13 is love is the most excellent way. It never fails. It never fails. Throughout all eternity, love, and this is speaking of God's love, a part of his nature, lasts forever. It lasts forever. And I find it interesting, to be honest, when we started the book of 1 Corinthians, so many of you came up, oh, we're going to talk about tongues. Are you going to talk about tongues? <laughs> That's all they wanted to know. I said, yeah, but you're going to have to be patient because it's going to take a while to get there. And some people hung around and other people didn't. But besides that, I find it interesting that we're finally here in this chapter, chapter 13, really highlighting the aspect of God's love. It's a wonderful chapter on love. You hear parts of it read at weddings and everything else. And right in the middle of this chapter, there is a subject, the subject of spiritual gifts, in particular, the subject of tongues or languages, as we call it, that has created controversy in the church as long as the church has been here, almost. <laughs> Especially in the last, you know, since the, the 1900s at least. It's been controversial. What is tongues? We're going to get into that. You have to be patient. Like I said, we're laying down a foundation for chapter 14. But here he wants us to know that there's three gifts he mentions, and we've been speaking of these. In verse 8, he says prophecy. He's not talking about the gift of prophecy. He's talking about the result of the gift of prophecy because it's in the plural. So he's saying when someone uses their gift of prophecy, what is that? It's, it's standing before people and proclaiming the word of God. That's what the gift of prophecy is. Now, before the canon was complete, before the word of God was complete, before you know, we have our Bible today, uh, before that was in place, prophecy did have an element of bringing forth new revelation because there wasn't the canon yet. So as Paul would speak or, or, 
any of the New Testament writers would write, they were writing something brand new. And so God was using their gift of prophecy in that, in that manner. It was bringing forth the word of God. In that case, it hadn't been declared yet. They didn't have a full Bible yet. They had the Old Testament. But today we, have, we are blessed. Aren't you blessed to have this book in your life? I mean, it's just amazing that you have your own personal copy of God's written word to you. You know it's true. You know it's never-ending. It's eternal. It will last forever, not the physical copy of your Bible. As a matter of fact, we won't have Bibles in heaven. We said that last week, right? But God's word is eternal. I just find it amazing. Right here in the middle, we have the subject of tongues. You have love, 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 and then you have this gift of tongues. And it's creates, created so much strife in the church. And it's unfortunate. And it really comes from a lot of misunderstanding about the gift. Some of it innocent, some of it not so innocent. And so when we approach this, no matter what your view is on this, I want you to know that we want to approach it with love. We have to. You know, we're not the kind of, of fellowship here that believes if, if you speak in tongues, then, well, you're not even a Christian. We don't believe that. But we also don't believe that if you don't speak in tongues, you could never be a Christian. <laughs> there are people who are both elements, both camps on the extreme. And so what we want to do is we want to dial down here and we want to see what Paul is talking about when he speaks about these spiritual gifts, particularly tongues. And we'll get into it as we finish off chapter 13. We're not going to finish it today, unfortunately. But when we get into chapter 14, we're really going to come to understand what this spiritual gift was. Now, remember, the church of Corinth, was it a really... Uh, good spiritual church? Were they just on the top of their game? No. They were a very fleshly church. Paul has to address them. He's writing this letter not out of, uh, you know, praise. He's writing it because somebody told him, man, there's some weird things going on in the church of Corinth, Paul. You, you better write them and, and get them figured out. They had some really odd practices going on. And you see it over and over again. It was a very, it wasn't so much a spirit-filled church. It was a flesh-filled church. They were focused on their flesh. Whatever is of the flesh is what? Sin, right? So the, the Corinthian church, even though they were gifted spiritually because a vast majority of them were believers, they allowed the world to creep into their church to the degree that... It almost had the reverse effect, you might say, of evangelism. You know, the, what we want to do is we want to go out into the world, right, the lost and dying world with the gospel of Christ and see people transformed and come to Christ and be saved. That should be what's on every Christian's heart. Well, here, what they did is they invited the world into their church. And instead of the world becoming like them <laughs> or Christ-like, their little church became more worldly, and they were practicing all sorts of horrible things within the confines of the church. They were called to be light, but they did deeds of darkness. They were called to be righteous, but here they were living in sin. And so instead of them being 
you could say Christianized, they were paganized. And the greatest failure, what Paul is pointing out, is they had a lack of love. They had a lack of love. They were so focused on their spiritual giftedness. And they, he mentions three here in our text. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. And all of those are, are gifts that would be done in front of people. That's why he names them, because that's what they were focused on. They were pining after these gifts. They wanted these gifts. Why? Because then they could be seen in front of a group. And people could say, oh, look at that person. Look at what they're doing. And it fed their flesh. See, whenever you're, you're feeding your flesh as a believer, you're in sin. <laughs> Whether you're using your giftedness or not, you have to make sure that you are practicing your gift in the love of God. First uh, Peter 4.8 says that love covers what? A multitude of sins. They had a multitude of sins, but they had no love. So guess what? Some of these sins were not being covered. And personally, there was gripes going on. It just, it just, it just was a mess. And so they had a great lovelessness and great sin within the confines of their church. And what they needed more than anything else was the love of God. They needed the righteousness of God. But here they focused on just having these these gifts. And so last week we looked at the idea that God's love is exalted in these verses. And first of all, we said it's because it endures. Because it endures. He says right there in verse 8, love never ends. The point is never at any time at all, will the love of God fail to accomplish his purpose, ever. And it's, it's when he uses that word, love never ends, it basically has the meaning of, of falling, a final, a final falling. It never will. It's used of a flower or a leaf that, that falls to the ground. And he says it will never happen. God's love, because it can't, because God's love is what? It's part of who God is. We know the verses, right? God is what? God is love. So if love were to fail, if the love of God were to fail in any way, that would mean that God failed. And if God failed, guess what? He's not God. (laughs) So we got a real problem. And so the love of God never fails. And we said the best way to remember what endures or what lasts for all eternity, and we we, we mentioned a couple things, we said we have to remember what will not endure, right? Sometimes the contrast puts things in perspective. So if God's love is for all eternity, well, what is not for all eternity? And we mentioned several things. We said your stuff, right, materialism, your strength, your body, your heart, your eyes. Those of you who are married, guess what? Your marriage will not last. In heaven, there's not marriage. You won't be married in heaven. And guess what else? The last thing we looked at was your spiritual gifts. They will not last. They're not eternal. They're they're temporary. And that's the dynamic that Paul is drawing out here in chapter 13. He's trying to get us to see that, look, God's love is eternal. Everything else, Corinthians, that you're focused on is not. 
So you need to readjust your thinking. And then we said we need to not only remember what does not endure, but we need to rejoice in what does endure. Well, what does last forever? The word of God, we said. The Lord himself, the glory of the Lord, the name of the Lord, the mercy of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord. All those things endure forever. And so we wanted us to understand that, first of all, it's because it endures, but also because... It exists when gifts are no more, verses 8 to 10. And we began to look at this, and like I said, we're going to take our time through this, so you have to be patient. It says, love never ends or fails. It always endures, even when our gifts are no more. God's love is still there. But he says, as for prophecies... And we had mentioned this before, but just so you understand what what prophecy is. Prophecy is a spiritual gift that allows you to speak forth or or to proclaim the word of God before an audience of people. That's what the gift of prophecy is. It's not thinking, you know, we think of somebody who's giving a prophecy. Oh, they're going to tell us what's happening next week. That's not the word here. Now, there were prophets right, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where what did God do? God gave them a message for the people. And sometimes it was prophetic. It was like, hey, this is going to happen. But here, in the New Testament, this word basically means the ability to proclaim God's truth publicly. It doesn't mean to speak before in terms of time. So get that out of your thinking. Now, notice here, it's, it's a noun. It's not, it's not a verb. It's not the gift of prophecy because it's plural. So we know it's, it's the result of the gift of prophecy, prophecies. <laughs> the result of preaching, the result of someone who has the gift of prophecy is what? Is the revelation of God is given. When someone stands before you and proclaims the word of God, that's what they're doing. They're proclaiming the word of God. They're not up here, Mary had a little lamb. His fleece was white as snow. I mean, that, that may bless your heart, but that is not the word of God. And we need to remind ourselves that as the role of the church, as the role of a pastor or an elder, is to bring forth the word of God and to preach it without apology. And so this is a noun. It's the prophecies. But it says here, what's going to happen to them? As for prophecies, they will pass away. See that? He says the same thing of knowledge. And you say, well, what is the gift of knowledge? The gift of knowledge is basically the ability or the capability of grasping the meaning of God's written word and make it plain. Observe the facts, observe the observations in God's word, and draw out a spiritual truth. That's that's the gift of knowledge. But he says here in verse 8, love never ends, but prophecies, the result of the gift of prophecy, they will pass away. And then skip down to knowledge. It will pass away. 
What is he saying here? That word pass away, we looked at this last week. It means to reduce to inactivity or to abolish. What's he saying? He's saying the gift of prophecy and the gift of knowledge will one day be gone. It's going to be made inoperative. Now, this is important because they're passive verbs here. They're passive. What does that mean? When a passive verb is in a sentence, the subject receives the action. So something is acting upon the subject or prophecy or knowledge here. Something is acting upon it to stop it. That's what he's saying. Where there are prophecies, guess what? They're going to pass away. Something's going to come and stop prophecies. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Something's going to come and stop this gift of knowledge. Prophecy and knowledge will be acted upon by some other force to stop it. And we know what it is. Look at verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. He's talking about the same gifts there. Verse 10. When will they stop? But when the perfect comes, what? The partial will pass away. So it's very clear. It's it's not a misunderstanding here. Knowledge and prophecy will end. When will they end? When the perfect comes. Because they're representative of partial. He said, we know in part, we prophesy in part. And when the perfect thing comes, guess what? You're not going to need it anymore. That's the, the thing that's replacing knowledge and prophecy, is that perfect thing. So when the perfect comes, it will stop knowledge and prophecy. We've got to figure out what this perfect thing is, and we'll get there. Patience. But look at what he says about tongues. Does he say they will pass away? The same word, no. In the original Greek, if you look at the verb, they will pass away, and then after prophecy, and, and they will, it will pass away after knowledge. It's the same verb. It's the same word in the Greek language. But guess what? He doesn't say that about tongues. He doesn't use that word. It's a different word. What does he mean? Prophecies and knowledge will pass away. The Greek word there is very common. It means it will be rendered inoperative. And so when we get to tongues, they're handled a little different than prophecy and knowledge. It says their tongues will cease. Pao in the, in the original language is the word. And guess what? It's not passive. The verb is it's called the intransitive verb. It couldn't ever be passive. There's no way. So what is he saying? Nothing's, nothing has to come to replace tongues. It's just going to end on its own. And it's not in the active tense either. 
In the Greek, you have a, what you call middle voice or middle reflexive. We would say in the active, if we were using the word active to, in English, we would say, I, what, hit the ball. What would be passive? The ball hit me. <laughs> well, the middle voice would say, I hit myself. <laughs> that's the voice that's used here. So tongues will stop all by themselves. In the understanding of this language here, when it says cease, it means it will stop, it will come to an end, it will never start again. There's a finality to it. Whereas prophecy and knowledge, it kind of indicates that they will be phased out over time. That's why he says they will pass away. But guess what? Tongues will cease, period. Now, what is the gift of tongues? We're going to get into this a little more in, in chapter 14, but just to give you a real quick summary of it, in the New Testament when they were brand new, the church was brand new, the disciples were brand new, they didn't have any credibility. Nobody knew who these guys were. God gifted these men with some supernatural sign gifts. They were gifted with things like the gift of healing. Um, all sorts of different miraculous things that they were able to do. Why did God allow them to have that? To establish their credibility amongst the people to which they were ministering. It connected them to Christ because Christ did the same miraculous things, did he not? And that's why Christ said, hey, the things I did, man, you guys are going to do far greater. So the, 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 the purpose of these sign gifts was to establish credibility of God's messengers, of, of God's servants. <clears throat> and so when he says here, the gift of tongues... And we'll get into this later on, but just real quickly, it's always a language. It was always a known language. If you look throughout the New Testament, wherever you see in the book of Acts the gift of tongues being used, the gift of languages, that's technically what the word means, it was always understood to be a language. And it was used sometimes because... In the New Testament church, they would have gatherings of people when the people came from all over the place. And so you see throughout the book of Acts, the gift of tongues was maybe one of the disciples was standing up and, and they would start teaching and God would give them this miraculous gift as they're standing in front of people that spoke a different language. It'd be like if you all spoke French and I spoke no French. And you came in here to hear the word of God. And I got up here to teach and I started speaking English, and you're like, hey, we can't understand you, pal. See, back then, God would say, well, wait a minute, I've got to establish the credibility of my servant here. Okay, you know what, I'm going to give you a supernatural ability to speak French to these people, even though you've never spoken it before, and you never learned it. That's the giftedness of this gift. That's what it did. And that's why, in certain parts, and we'll see this when we get further on in chapter 14, Paul says, look, if you're going to speak a different language in front of people, 
Even though some of them may understand that language, it may be a supernatural work of God. Say, you all spoke Spanish over here, and the rest of you spoke English. And God gave me the supernatural ability to speak Spanish to these people, so I just started preaching in Spanish. Well, guess what? Would you be edified by that if you didn't know Spanish? No. So what would God do? God would allow this person to speak in Spanish to this group, and then someone else would be raised up with the gift of interpretation of tongues. One of the other disciples would say, okay, well, I've got to tell this other group that speaks English, I'm going to translate your Spanish into English. I don't even know how I'm doing this because I don't even know either language. <laughs> that was the giftedness that God did. That's why it was a, such a supernatural thing. And that's why whenever you see people's reaction to the disciples when they were doing this, they were like, wait a minute, how are these guys doing this? Aren't they just mere fishermen from Galilee? How do they know all these languages? It's the supernatural gift of languages, or as it's referred to here, tongues. Now, we're going to get into the whole unknown tongue in chapter 14. But let me tell you, that word unknown, unknown tongue, as some people call it today, is not something that's just babble. It has to be a language. And we'll show you when we get to chapter 14. You need to be patient. But when we get there, Paul starts to to use that word in some translations in the English, and it's really caused an issue. It's almost given people that believe that these languages are for today the ability to just stand up and, oh, there's babbling. They make no sense to anybody. And what are they doing? They say, well, that's for me. That's, that's my spiritual gift of languages, and it builds me up. And I want to scream and shout and go, wait a minute, where? Find me one verse in the Bible that tells you your spiritual giftedness is to build yourself up. Where are we ever told to do that? It's gifted, we're gifted as a body of Christ so that what we can use our gifts in a fellowship, and as we use our gifts, what does it do? It edifies the body of Christ. It's not just about you, but that's where the Corinthians ended up. It was all about them. They wanted the spotlight on them 24-7. And so they were, they were creating a lot of issues here. Now, God gave the gift of tongues with a, you could say, a built-in time clock, <laughs> a built-in battery. It had a limited supply of energy, and it had a limited lifespan. And when its limits were reached, it just ended. That's what the original language indicates. It just stopped, period. It wasn't phased out like prophecy and knowledge. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If you're, if you're prophesying the word of God, or if you're given knowledge, and both of those had to do with the revelation of God back then because they didn't have the completed Bible, right? So when someone would stand up and God would give them the gift of prophecy and they were speaking the word of God, that was literally how the word of God was communicated. Today we have the completed text. And so it would make sense if you start the New Testament, and by the way, 1 Corinthians is one of the oldest books, 
that was written. And so, as we're discussing this here, you see the gift of tongues here. And in the book of Acts. You see it nowhere else. And we're going to talk about that. It's like it just vanished. And so the question remains, simply, when and how these gifts will end? Prophecy and knowledge are said to end when the perfect comes, and we're going to be covering that in the weeks to come, what the perfect is. They'll not be replaced by something better. It says that that tongues will just cease, all on their own. And so when you talk about giftedness and you talk about spiritual gifts, and we mentioned this in a couple messages uh, ago, but you have basically two points of view. You have one view that says they are, uh, the spiritual gifts are for today. All of them are for today. They're all active today. You would call that the non-cessationist viewpoint in theology. In other words, they didn't cease. They still continue. So you still have people doing gifted with healings. What was the gift of healing? The gift of healing gave you a supernatural ability to walk around the room here and, hey, is anything ailing you? You got a problem? Oh, you know what? You're healed in the name of Jesus. It didn't depend on your faith. It didn't depend on anything. You could go into a hospital and literally clean a place out if you had the gift of healing. That's what the supernatural gift of healing was. That's what made it so miraculous. It wasn't some guy setting up a tent saying, hey, if you have enough faith, you can walk down here and I'll lay my hand on you and you'll be healed. Oh, sorry, you didn't get healed. Well, that's your problem. That, that's not what Jesus did. Matter of fact, basically, disease and, and all those things were, were written off the landscape when Christ was around. Because everywhere he went, he was healing people. And then his followers did the same. So you had the supernatural ability to, to proclaim someone healed, and they were healed. Now, people say they have that today. They possess the gift of healing. I've never seen somebody use it the way Jesus did. You know, they'll always have some kind of scam going on to make it look like it. And I'm, hear me, I am not saying that God does not heal today. Do we pray for people's healings? Definitely. Does God heal today? Most definitely. When he chooses to do so. The difference is he doesn't use an individual who's gifted with that gift of healing to do it. We can pray for people, which is, in my mind, even better. <laughs> you can pray for someone who's sick, knowing that if it's God's will, he's going to heal that person. And if you look at the people who were healed in the New Testament, guess what? They were healed. You know, they weren't limping away. Well, he healed my right leg, but he, my left leg still needs some work. That didn't happen. They were healed completely. And so you have a view that says all these gifts continue to today. You have another view that says no, the cessationist view that says no, some of them ceased. Some of the miraculous sign gifts were for the establishment of the New Testament apostles. And and once that was done, once their credibility was in place... Those gifts were no longer needed. 
And so those are the two views. And so the cessation of tongues here, the cessation of these languages, is not mentioned, if you notice here, it's not mentioned about the perfect Right? It says in verse 9, we, prof- we know in part, we prophesy in part. He doesn't say we tongue in part. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, right? He wouldn't say that. So it, it's only indicative that, that prophecy and knowledge are kind of continuing, but they're waiting for something perfect to come, and then they will stop. But tongues, he doesn't say that. He just says, you know what? They're just going to stop. And I think the reasoning is, is because they've already ceased. Even at this point. And so we want to look at some reasoning here. I said tongues was a sign gift. Tongues was a sign gift, as was the gift of healings, as was the gift of uh, miracles. And it ceased to operate when the New Testament was complete. Because It was given as a sign. Now, God doesn't cease to perform miracles. He's a God of the miraculous. He does miraculous things all the time in accord with his sovereign will. But the Bible, if you look at Bible history, it seems to indicate there are only three periods of history in the Scriptures in which human beings were given miraculous giftedness. And you can look at them throughout the scriptures. It was during the ministries of Moses and Joshua. Certain miraculous things happened. It was during the time of Elijah and Elisha. That was an incredible time. And it was also during the time of who? Of Jesus and his apostles. During those three periods of time, and each period of time, by the way, historians tell us, last about 70 years. And so God would work in his people miraculously using individuals to do that. And it would go on for about 70 years, and then it would just end. It would just stop for no apparent reason. The only other age of miracles will be in the millennial kingdom, right? In Hebrews 6, 5, it says, it talks of that, of the powers of the age to come. But the last miracle recorded in the New Testament in which God worked directly through a human being, a human instrument, occurred in Acts 28, 8, around the year 58. And from that time on, until about 96 A.D., When John completed the writing of Revelation, not a single miracle of that sort is mentioned. That God is working miraculously through an individual who's given these abilities. The New Testament miraculous age was for the purpose of confirming the word as given by Jesus and the apostles, of offering the kingdom to Israel and of giving a a taste, a, a kind of a sample of that kingdom. And so we have to be reminded that it, 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 it was given as a sign. It wasn't given as something permanent.
when Israel turned its back on Christ and turned his, their back on his kingdom, Hebrews 6.6 6 tells us that it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. And what happened at that point was God was trying to reach his people, Israel. They wouldn't have it. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected him. And they said no. And what did God say? Okay, you know what? If you're not going to listen to me, I'll go somewhere else. I'll go to who? I'll go to the Gentiles. I will take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. And the teaching of Christ and the apostles had been confirmed to Israel, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. It tells us that right in Hebrews 2. It's interesting that even though Hebrews was written as early as, some believe, 67 or 68 A.D., the writer speaks there of this confirmation this miraculous stuff happening to confirm the word of God, he speaks of it in the past tense. It's already been done. It's already been confirmed. Even that early, 67, 68. He's saying almost like, well, you know what? The, the sign and wonders and miracles, it's already over because it's already been confirmed. The word of God's already been confirmed. By the time you get to Hebrews, so it was given as a sign. Second, the evidence that the gift of tongues will end, was ended with the apostles, is that it was given for the specific purpose of a judicial sign of Israel's judgment. And he, they, they ceased to apply it at the time. Paul reminds the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll get there, in the law, it is written by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen, says the Lord. So even though these individuals heard the word of God in their own language when the people speaking it didn't speak the language, that was a miraculous thing. And everybody went, wow. But their hearts were so hard, they just rejected it. They wouldn't listen. Israel refused to listen and believe when God spoke to them in clear language. So guess what? Now I'm going to speak to you in a language you're not going to understand. And it's kind of a testimony of their, against their rejection of him. 1 Corinthians 14.22, we'll see this when we get there, but it says that tongues were not given as a sign to believers. You've probably read that verse. They weren't given as a sign to believers, but to who? To unbelievers. <laughs> Specifically to unbelieving Jews. And when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, Judaism basically ended <laughs> at that point. Just kind of on the periphery, it went on. But for the most part, it was over. And when the temple was destroyed, the sacrificial system was destroyed. And the need for a Jewish priesthood was destroyed. Think about it. And from that day, it has been impossible for the requirements of the Old Testament in their mind to be fulfilled. They can't do what they used to be able to do. 
And so when that destruction occurred some 15 years after Paul wrote this in the epistle, the need for tongues as a judicial sign to Israel had no further use. There's no further value of it. And there's no need today for a sign that God is moving from Israel to the world. So we see that. Thirdly, tongues ceased because they were an inferior means of building somebody up or edifying somebody. It didn't work for edification. And you see that in 1 Corinthians 14, and we're not going to get into that because we'll get into it when we get there. The only way that tongues was a means of edification for anyone, languages, was when you had an interpreter. Tongues had the ability to edify if someone told them what they were saying. If I'm speaking to you in Spanish and they don't understand Spanish, someone over here would have to translate. Then you would sit there and you'd go, oh, that's what he's saying. Have you ever been in a service where they spoke in a different language and they have a, someone translating for you? It can be kind of confusing. It's even more confusing when you're trying to preach a sermon and you're preaching in English and some of the people speak English and some of the people speak something else. And so you have this guy standing beside you and with every sentence you're saying, they're saying it, but they're saying it in a language you have no idea what they're saying. Talk about trust, faith. Whenever we went to India, I always would ask Sam Rajkumar, okay, how was the interpreter? Because <laughs> I don't want to be accused of teaching something that's not right. No, he was pretty good, right on, spot on. And you got to think about all those things. You know, sometimes you go to a foreign country and you're, you have this fancy little illustration that you concocted over here in America and people understand it. Maybe it talks about sports teams or it talks about that. I've used some of those in India and they just look at you like, what are you talking about? They have no idea because that's not the world in which they live. So you need an interpreter. So tongues cease because it was an inferior means of edifying anybody. The only purpose that it served was to be able to speak the word of God to people that spoke a different language. And you couldn't speak it. So God would supernaturally give that to them. Paul even goes on and he says, I'd rather um, uh, speak five words intelligently, you know, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Why? Because you can speak 10,000 words in an unknown language, in a language nobody spoke, and guess what? They're not going to understand you. I would rather be able to speak to their heart five words in a language that they could understand. So, thirdly, it not only ceased because it was a sign gift, it was only temporary. Secondly, it ceased because the, the purpose for a judicial sign for Israel had ceased. It was an inferior means of edification. And these aren't in your outline. I apologize. I kind of threw this in the last minute. But Fourthly, the gift of tongues ceased because its purpose as a confirming sign of apostolic authority and doctrine ended when the New Testament was completed. This kind of makes sense. Genuine language speaking, tongue speaking, involved... Direct revelation of God to the speaker. And he would convey it to his audience. Because they didn't know the language. 
it's not like the, the disciples, oh, I got to brush up on my whatever <laughs> accent because I'm going to speak there. No, God, they would get up and they would say, oh boy, these, these people don't even speak our language. And God would just supernaturally give them the ability to teach in a language they never heard before. That's why it was called a miracle, right? And so when all this concluded and their apostolic authority and their doctrine was confirmed, like, he, like Hebrews says, it was confirmed, it's done, it's over. The New Testament is complete with the book of Revelation. It says there's not going to be more written, right? Read the last, last chapter of Revelation. It tells us that clearly. You don't get to add to it. And that leads us on to the fifth. It's in reasonable to believe the tongues have ceased because their use is mentioned only in the early New Testament books. A vast majority of the New Testament books don't even mention the gift of tongues. They don't even mention it. It's mentioned here in Corinthians where it's a problem. It's not a blessing. Paul, Like I said, Paul was addressing them because they had an issue here with the practice of their spiritual gifts. They weren't doing it by the Spirit. They were doing it in a fleshly manner. But other than Acts, you don't really see it. Paul mentions it just here in one letter. James, Peter, John, Jude, they they don't make any mention of it at all. It seems kind of odd if it was such an important thing that continued throughout the New Testament that they would make mention of it, but they don't. Nor does reference it to appear in the book of Acts after 19... Chapter 19, verse 6. So it seems clear that the New Testament record itself indicates that not only did tongues cease to be an issue, but it also ceased to be practiced. It ceased to be practiced well before the end of the apostolic age. Um, Nowhere in the epistles, anywhere you look in any of the, the, the epistles, the letters, is it commanded or is it enjoined on believers as a responsibility or a, a spiritual exercise or duty to speak in tongues? It doesn't, doesn't say that. You're not going to find a verse that says that. And then lastly, the gift of, of tongues apparently ceased because since the apostolic age in history, We're not just talking biblical history, we're talking history, world history. It has reappeared only occasionally and questionably throughout the 19th century of church history. The gift of tongues is nowhere alluded to or found in any of the writings of the authentic church fathers. Um, Clement of Rome, he wrote a letter to the Corinthian church in the year 95. Only about four decades after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. In discussing the problems in the church, guess what? He makes no mention of tongues. None at all. Zero. So apparently they listened to Paul and they cleaned their act up, which is good. There's always hope. Because the, the use and the misuse of their gift had ceased Justin Martyr, great church father of the second century, visited many churches in his day, and yet he never mentions anything about tongues. 
ever. It's mentioned, it's not even mentioned among his several lists of spiritual gifts. He actually gives lists of the spiritual gifts. It's not mentioned. Why? Because these, these men knew that it had ceased. Origen, who was a brilliant church scholar, lived during the third century, makes no mention of this miraculous gift of tongues. As a matter of fact, he explicitly argues in one argument that the sign gifts of the apostolic age were temporary and were not exercised by Christians of his day. And then you have Christendom, who, the greatest possibly post-New Testament writer, he lived from 347 to 407, writing on 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he states that tongues and the other miraculous gifts not only had ceased, but could not even be accurately defined. And even Augustine, when he wrote his comments on Acts chapter 2, verse 4, he said this, In the earliest times the Holy Spirit fell on them that believed, and they spoke with tongues. These were signs adapted to that time, for they, for their, for their behooved to be betokening of the Holy Spirit. That thing was done for a betokening, and it passed away. And so you have secular history and church history that agrees that basically tongues fell off the face of the earth. It stopped as far as the spiritual giftedness goes. They all maintain that tongues ceased to exist after the time of the apostles. There's a couple exceptions, and you can read about them on your own, but they're just people who are really whacked in their theology, to put it nicely. They're really odd. Um, There was some evidence that it crept into the Roman Catholic Church. There was one movement led by Montanus, a second century heretic who believed that divine revelation continued through him and beyond the New Testament. He was the source of divine revelation. For over 1,800 years, the gift of tongues, along with all the other miraculous gifts, was unknown in the life and doctrine of Orthodox Christianity. It's hard to believe that, but if you check it out historically, it's true. And around the turn of the 20th century, tongues became a major emphasis within what we call today the holiness movement. It's a large section of, of believers that, that believe that these gifts were for today, and it, it developed in what we call the, into the modern Pentecostalism of today. And we also you hear the word the charismatic movement that began around 1960, and they carried the practice of tongues beyond traditional Pentecostalism into many other denominations, churches, groups, didn't matter whether you're Catholic, Protestant, didn't matter. Mormons, they all claim to speak in tongues. Hindu people. And a lot of modern-day charismatics, and we say this with love, they defend tongues, the modern use of the gift of tongues, as part of these latter-day signs that you read, you read about in the prophet Joel. Um, and you, when you investigate that, it, 
it, it doesn't fit what they're saying. And we'll get into that in chapter 15. But see, it's important that we understand this because either you believe that this word that God has given to us is complete and whole, and you believe when John says at the conclusion of the book of Revelation that if you add to this or take away from it, you're in big trouble, or you say, no, you know what, I'm going to let my experience speak over the word of God And even though it says that, I don't believe it. So I think that God is still giving me divine revelation today through the gift of tongues. And I believe it's for today. And so God is not finished with his book. He continues to write it even as we speak. And so I can come in here today and say, you know what? This morning when I was shaving, the Lord spoke to my heart. And here's what he said. Thus saith the Lord. And I give you a phrase. You should be able to write that in the book of your Bible. All the way in the back, the book of Stephanus. And you just write it in there. This is what the pastor said. And he's a prophet. And his, you know, this is the word of God. And you look at the people who are putting this kind of theology out. All you have to do is look at them. Look at their track records. It doesn't bode well. There's something wrong. There's an ulterior motive. When someone won't deal with the theology as we have revealed in the Word of God, when you try to talk to them about this, they come back at you and they say, Hey, don't, don't you question God's anointed. What? So we're just supposed to believe whatever you say, pal. I'm God's anointed servant. That's why they call themselves apostles when the office doesn't even exist today. See, it's, I mean, when you're so caught up with titles, and it doesn't matter whether you're calling yourself the apostle or you call yourself father, <laughs> there's always error attached to it. There's something wrong. And we need to be aware of that. So we see here very clearly, hopefully, I pray that your heart is open to this, and this is not meant to be divisive. This is just explaining what the text says and what history says. We'll get into this further. But but trust me, I'm not here to bash the charismatics. I believe most of them are, are brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that they're lacking in their understanding of what these gifts are and how God has used them and continues to use some of them and others have ceased. They don't want to go there because they're living an experience. It would be like if you came in here this morning and said, Pastor, I have to tell you, you know, this morning when I got up and I looked in the mirror... My whole face and body was purple, and it had little green dots all over it. Okay, would be my response. (laughs) Well, you don't look purple with green dots. I know, but it happened. It, It happened to me. How can I argue with that? I can't. That's your that's your experience. And that's what's happened with the modern day charismatic movement. You're drawn into an experience. 
And they'll tell you this. All you have to do is go to a charismatic church that's really heavily into tongue speaking and things like that. And they'll say, if you're not speaking with tongues, you are not saved. You do not have the Holy Spirit. So they've elevated this gift above all others, (laughs) even though Paul does just the opposite. The word of God is just the opposite. So you have to stop and you have to say, okay, we don't want to be crazy about this. We're not saying they're not part of the body of Christ. We're saying they might be a little confused. And we're also not saying that, oh, we got it all worked out. We have this perfect understanding of the word of God and we have the only source of truth. No, we're not saying that either. You know, these are areas that are, are hard and difficult to deal with. And I think that's why God put it right here, smack dab in the middle of a chapter that talks about love. We have a lot of people on the reform side of of theology that they're not showing a whole lot of love nowadays. And that doesn't mean that you just compromise and let people believe whatever they... No, you bring them to the Word of God and you explain to them in a loving manner what the Word of God says. If they reject it, that's their problem. I mean, frankly, if someone's not willing to look honestly at the Word of God and they're willing to put their experience over the authority of the Word of God, I don't want anything to do with them. They're a lost cause. I mean, you, how, how would you, if you show somebody in the Bible, look, it says right here that Jesus says, I am the way. Well, I don't believe that. What's your next move? I mean, you can pray for them. You can try to convince them, but if they just say, no, I don't believe it. That's your choice. See, that's where the New Testament says, you know, you just kind of wipe your feet off and you move on to more fertile ground. It's not that you forget about them. You pray for them. You ask God to intercede for their soul. But there comes a time where we have to realize that some people are so thoroughly confused on this issue, they're unwilling even to deal with the Bible that they say they love and cherish. They don't want to deal with it. And then you have churches, on the other hand, that don't want to teach about this. Why? Because it's divisive. It, It can cause division within a church. So what do pastors do? They go up to about, you know, this verse, and then they just skip. <laughs> and they skip all the controversial parts. We don't do that here. We want to teach through the word of God. We believe every word is written for a purpose. It has meaning. And we want to make it abundantly clear about it, what it says, how to apply it. And so when we begin to look further next week at what this perfect thing is, you can be praying for me that I share it appropriately and also that as you read through the text, start to read through the text, read into chapter 14 and ask God, boy, give me clear understanding on this. Don't rely on me. And, and then, then we come together around the word of God and we explain what it says and that's, that's where the fellowship is. But we can't be a church that's called to be one if we're both running to both sides of the issue and saying we don't want to talk to each other. That's not appropriate. Um, There are some churches that believe in secondary separation, which means that, well, if you don't believe like we believe, then we're not having to do with you. That's not the body of Christ. That's not what we're called to do. Now, if someone's saying, well, Jesus isn't God, then you might want to think twice about fellowshipping with somebody like that, right? Because they're not even in Christ. But essentials, 
we have unity, then, then we need to allow some of these things. Like I said, this has been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, this debate. We're not going to settle it overnight. You can settle it in your own heart. I've settled it in my own mind because I've studied it and I've looked at everything I can. And I completely, wholeheartedly believe that these miraculous gifts, these signed gifts, ended when the apostles' ministry ended in the New Testament. And we have the word of God today, and that's where we look for God's revelation. Well, let's close there, and we'll continue next week. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you do gift us spiritually. And Lord, that you do show us how you want to use us in the body of Christ. Father, however that is, however you gift us and however you want to use us, you always want it to be for the edification of the body. We do these things because we're interested in seeing Christians built up in their faith. We teach the Bible because we know it's the words of truth, that it's your word. It's not our word. And Lord, I'm so thankful for the patience of people as we work through these things that we don't just want to rush through it with quick, three little quick points and let's just move on. I really want people to grapple with this and to understand it fully. And no matter where you come down on it, it's still, it's, it's not a means of secondary separation. We're called to be one in Christ. And some of these things are non-essentials. And so we need to have a proper understanding of Scripture. And we don't want to compromise that. But at the same time, some people may not share that. And that's okay. But we, we want to desire to continue to mine out your truth through the power of your Spirit. And we pray this morning, if there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ as the sole source of truth, as the only way of salvation. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. You can't do an end around Christ. And if you're here this morning and you have yet to deal with the burden of your sin, the Bible proclaims that we're all sinners, we all fall short of God's glory, we've all done something that dishonored God at some point in time in our life. And as a result of that, we're classified as sinners. And we're under the the wrath of God. But God, because he is gracious, he provided a way out. He provided an escape. And that's his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross. When he died on that cross, God placed on him your sin, my sin. All the sins of those who would ever put their faith, their trust in Christ and believe in him and him alone for salvation. He carried the weight of our sin. And God gave to us his righteousness. What a glorious exchange. And God affirmed that by, on the third day, as we will be celebrating next month, that he what? He rose from the dead. Victorious over sin and death. If you're here this morning and you're still dealing with your sin and you feel trapped in the muck and mire of this world, then you cry out to God, Lord, save me. I trust you for my salvation, no other. Pray that you will transform my heart and my life. Allow me to live a life that's pleasing to you through the power of your spirit. What an incredible, miraculous thing that can happen to someone, even this morning as they're willing to cry out to you. And as believers, I pray that we'll never tire in doing good, 
We'll never tire in giving out the glorious gospel of Christ, even though we don't see the results we want all the time. Father, you say that your word will not return void. And so we do it out of obedience. And we just pray that you would give us a wonderful day, fellowship. Pray you'd bless the food to our bodies across the way. And as we fellowship as together as believers, that you would just bless our time here. And Father, we just thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.